welcome to Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's Beaten Path. I'm Mike Allen, here with another story about historically significant people, places, and events from Connecticut's long and fabled past. Today on Amazing Tales, most New England towns have a traditional town center. Settlers established a town green with a big white church and a few stately white mansions. You get the picture. What if you had a town that didn't have a town center? What do you do to create one? Well, that's the problem for Brookfield, Connecticut. And here to help me tell the story of how they're overcoming it are the chairman of the board of the Brookfield Museum and Historical Society, Bob Brown, and former town selectman Howard Lasser, now the director of the Brookfield Craft Center, which plays an important role in this story. Brookfield, Connecticut might as well be known as the town without a town center. In fact, for the longest time, it was a town without a town at all. Oh, people lived there, but it wasn't as if settlers arrived, plopped down their belongings, staked out some land, and said, this is Brookfield. No, what is today Brookfield, Connecticut, was literally carved out of three other existing towns. Danbury, which was itself formed in 1702, New Milford formed five years later in 1707, and Newtown formed in 1710, and all three of them have town centers. Newtown's, as you may know, is dominated by a huge flagpole right in the middle of the intersection of Routes 6 and 25. New Milford's is a more traditional, iconic New England town green, complete with a gazebo and central grassy walking area. It's even been used as a backdrop for TV commercials. Danbury has a traditional town green, complete with that grassy walking area, but it's kind of been forgotten about by many residents. It's along Southern Main Street, while most of the day-to-day -day activity happens further north of there. But what about Brookfield? Where's its town center? Well, it wasn't until 1788 that the town even got its own land and its own name. That's 70 to 80 years after the other three got their starts. An agreement was reached that created the town by having the other three towns each give up some of their own territory. In all, 20 square miles was dedicated to the cause of forming Brookfield. As we'll see in a moment, this had its underpinnings in religion. There were already people living on those lands owned by Danbury, New Milford, and Newtown, and those people had already started to give shape to the character of their neighborhoods. There were two primary neighborhoods, the first is where New Milford was located along the Still River. It's a section also known by its more geographically based name, the Four Corners. Maybe you know the Four Corners. It's where U.S. Route 202 and Connecticut Route 25 connect. There's a four-way intersection with a stoplight that for decades was populated by four gasoline stations, one on each corner. Well, today, three of the Four Corners still have gas stations. The chairman of the Brookfield Museum and Historical Society is Bob Brown. Bob's house is one of the original houses in the former New Milford section of town. The original part of his house was built in 1750, and addition was put on in 1757. There were two rooms on the ground floor and a loft of sorts serving as a second floor. And not untypically, uh, they raised 12 kids there. The Still River that runs through this area is the second largest river in the region, after the Housatonic. Most rivers and streams in North America flow south towards the equator, 
but not the Still River. It flows north from its beginning in Danbury through present-day Brookfield and to its end in New Milford where it joins the Housatonic. Generally, it's a fairly lazy river, hence the name Still River. However, at about the halfway mark along the river is a waterfall named, appropriately enough, Halfway Falls. After the falls, the water gets up a good head of steam. The river takes a downhill run for about, uh, I'll say a quarter mile at least. That quarter mile run was a rush of water that provided a lot of water power uh, for the factories and businesses that, that were involved there. The rushing water created the necessary flow to turn water wheels, the primary energy source for early settlers to run their mills. Bob Brown says that the very first industrial activity started in 1732, taking advantage of the iron deposits found in the top layer of the soils throughout the region. They smelted iron there, melted it down from iron ore that was taken from the surface of the, of the earth. Now, almost 300 years later, this part of Brookfield is still known as the Iron Works District. Bob says that factories popped up along both banks of the river, some supporting the major industry at the time in the region, which was based in Danbury. Of course, Danbury being the, the main focus of, of the hat industry, uh, all the surrounding towns around Danbury made stuff for the hatting industry. But Bob says people are often surprised to learn about the really big industry that Brookfield boasted back then. Scissors and knives, one of the largest factories in Brookfield, in the area, I'll tell you, probably including Danbury, this, it was a big operation, uh, and they employed quite a few people in Brookfield, and it burned down. You can still find rusted scissors and knives on the banks of the river where the fire occurred, if you know where to look. Of course, early settlers always located their grist mills on the banks of a powerful river to drive the large stone wheel that ground the grains from wheat, oats, barley, and other crops into flour. Well, the mill building from Brookfield remains today, and we'll come back to that later on. Further south, on land that was part of Newtown, lived farmers. Now, like most farmers in those days in New England, they were religious folks, and they went to church every Sunday. Of course, laws in those days mandated that you go to church on Sunday. In fact, part of your taxes paid the salaries of ministers and preachers. But as hardy as the early settlers were, even they had their limits. Sometimes a trip to church on horseback or on horse and buggy was just too difficult due to distance, weather, or other factors. The state was often approached for special permission to form winter parishes closer to home or brand new separate parishes to tend to the needs of the people living farthest from a church. Well, the farmers in this region did just that. In 1757, about 20 years after the first iron smelting plant had opened north of them, the farmers petitioned Hartford for permission to form their own parish. Horse and buggy rides to churches in Newtown, Danbury, and New Milford were just too much. The state approved this, and the residents chose a parish name that borrowed from the three towns around them that had the churches. They called their parish Newberry from Newtown, New Milford, and Danbury. Well, this gave the residents the right to build a meeting house and hire a minister. The meeting house, of course, is long gone, but it used to stand in the approximate location of where today's Newbury Congregational Church stands on Route 133. The minister they hired? A man born in England named 
Thomas Brook, after whom the town would later be named. The next logical step for the residents in their progression away from the churches in the three area towns was to form a separate town all for themselves. There's a great book on this topic, a short one, called Newberry to Brookfield by Barbara Todd. And if you want all the details, please read that. For our purposes here, it's sufficient to know that when the town was formed in 1788, it was missing a key ingredient, a town green. Bob Brown says, chalk it up to the unique way in which the town was formed. It was hard to pick a spot. And we never did pick a spot that would be the town green. So Brookfield's been getting by without the benefit of the same sort of traditional town green one would expect when driving through a New England town. Until relatively recently. That's when town officials put together a concerted strategy to identify and build up a town center. They chose the Ironworks District at the Four Corners. It wouldn't have a walkable green, per se, with a white church. On the contrary, it would feature a mixed-use zoning approach. There would be apartments, businesses, and plenty of sidewalks, coupled with access to the town's premier hiking trail, the Still River Greenway. It would be the true downtown that other towns enjoyed, a source of identification both for Brookfield townspeople and visitors. Well, many towns now have mixed-use zoning areas. What else does Brookfields have to offer? Former town selectman Howard Lasser says it had at least two other terribly important factors, charm and history. We wanted to see it developed as a typical New England village. And I said, you can't have a New England village if you don't have New England buildings. And what's more typical of a New England village than an old mill? Yes, the original mill, used to grind farmers' crops and powered by the Still River, was still standing. Howard should know. After he stepped away from the Board of Selectmen into retirement, he took up the challenge of being the director of the venerable Brookfield Craft Center. The Craft Center owns the old mill building and has converted it into artist studios. Howard says that you just have to look around the Ironworks or Four Corners area to see how many parcels are worth one's attention. Preserving, you know, the old mill, the old train station, the carriage barn, and, you know, the Miller House that was built in the late 18th century. These are pieces of our history, and I think they deserve to be a part of an integrated Four Corners business town center. And most of those buildings are now part of the Craft Center enterprise. And the area has other interesting culture to point to. Bob Brown notes that just a quarter mile from Four Corners is Laurel Hill Road, one of the oldest roads in the country. It's where the Brookfield Inn used to stand. That's the road that uh, supposedly George Washington traveled on and actually stopped in the, uh, the old inn that was, was at the corner of Station Road and Laurel Hill. The Brookfield Inn is no longer in Brookfield, but the structure itself was saved and moved nearly 10 miles by a relative of one of America's most famous music composers who lived in Danbury. The cousin of Charles Ives, the composer, came across that house, and he liked it. He fell in love with it. He was a collector of antiques. And he, uh, he just loved the idea of that house, what that house represented and what was left of it. He had the house dismantled completely and moved to that spot in Danbury. 
So, okay, you've picked up a location for a town center. What do you do next? Well, there were three gigantic steps that had to be taken. First, something had to be done to control the horrible traffic. While the Four Corners is where Routes 202 and 25 come together now, for most of the town's history, Route 202 also doubled as U.S. Route 7. Bob Brown says the sole traffic-lighted Four Corners caused an absolute nightmare every day at rush hour. And it would be daily, daily traffic jams caused by the Brookfield light. It would continue down onto the highway, down Route 7, almost to Danbury every day. <laughs> People would sit in this line of traffic waiting to get through Brookfield. Brookfield's Jody Rell became governor of Connecticut in 2004, a post she held until 2011. During her tenure, the so-called Route 7 Bypass Highway was constructed, directing the bulk of the commuter traffic away from that horrible intersection. The second big step was to build the mixed-use neighborhood. That's actually underway and making substantial progress. The third part was to rescue and resuscitate the Brookfield Craft Center. After many years as a very successful artist's teaching facility, it had slipped into financial stress. Its facilities were physically dilapidated, and it was in danger of closing. When Howard Lasser was asked to get involved as director, he asked the board for two years of interference-free time to do what he felt needed to be done. While he didn't yet know precisely where this would take him, he knew the basics were in place. I didn't have a whole lot of understanding of what the Craft Center did, um, but the structures here are historic, and I think they're iconic. Like many people from throughout the region, Howard knew he liked what he saw in the Craft Center retail shop, a must-see for holiday shopping. My only involvement at the Brookfield Craft Center was coming during the holiday season to buy gifts in the retail shop. However, he also got some not-so-subtle signals early on that changes were needed at the retail shop, too. I remember it was Mother's Day in 2014, and we were sitting in the shop talking to the woman who was the board chair at that time and talking about how to raise money for the craft center. And we'd get people knocking on the door saying, are you open? Or calling and saying, are you open? I said, you know, we got to get this shop open. And so an extension of the hours of operation was implemented. Howard studied ancient history in college and evolved into finance in his professional career. Turns out that would be the perfect combination for him for the challenges that he faced. He soon concluded that he needed to increase both the number of students paying for classes as well as the breadth of crafts offered. Howard also came to the realization that he needed some help. He needed to be able to focus on the business side while hiring somebody to manage the teachers and programming. Well, we didn't have the money to do that. Fortunately, you know, I always say it's better to be lucky than good. Uh, I was approached by a gentleman who lives in town who said that he'd like to help us. And he was on the board of a foundation that doesn't want to be public. He convinced the benefactor of his strategy and then hired artist-in-residence Valerie Culbertson to help bring in new and younger teachers. Howard also realized he needed to understand the business he was getting involved with, especially considering the wide range of offerings now at the center. There is wood turning on lathes, ceramics, weaving, fibers, a forge, glass arts, jewelry, drawing, and painting. Not having any kind of background in craft, trying to understand the f challenges that each studio presents to the teachers, 
I think the only way you do that is take a class with them. And this finance major learned something very important early on. I'm no great artist, um, but it is fun. And to have something you made with your hands, your own hands, and take it home. And even if it's kind of a little lopsided or whatever, you can still take great pride in the fact that you did that yourself. Howard saw it in himself, and he saw a similar characteristic in all of the new faculty that Valerie Culbertson was working to recruit. They have a passion for sharing their passion. (laughs) And it was this realization of how deeply the people part of the equation ran in this organization that helped him understand a core and basic principle. A lot of startup businesses fail for lack of capital. In a place like this, your capital is people. In business, of course, you always have to consider your competition. But in this case, Howard says the competition's actually a great source of support. And he says, frankly, there aren't enough art centers to go around. There's the Silvermine Arts Guild in New Canaan and another large center in Guilford. And Howard says he's learned a lot from their directors and they all work collaboratively. But the Weepetuck Craft Village in nearby New York State is defunct. And there are smaller art schools and individual art classes, but nothing on the scale of what Brookfield offers. Aside from everything else listed before, Howard has something even more unique and special that he's introduced, the Center for Modern Craft. That's where modern-day electronics and computers are brought to bear on many of these historic handcrafting techniques, helping to develop specialized crafting tools and other design concepts. With this overall very impressive offering, it means that the Craft Center draws 60% of their students from outside the greater Danbury area. There are certain areas, certain things we do here that, that others don't do. Um, we've had people from Erie, Pennsylvania for the wood turning studio. Um, we get people from Philadelphia coming up to our forge or from Long Island. And Howard draws inspiration from other sources including proposals for new offerings. I went across the street to the Brookfield Market to get a sandwich or something, and the kid who was checking me out said, you know, I go to Brookfield High School. Could I do a show? And I said, that's a great idea. We should do a student show. And so that was the genesis of that. It's been a seven-year labor of love for Howard Lasser, who volunteers his time for the Craft Center cause. He says that with his artist-in-residence doing a great job with enrollment, and more teachers being located, the picture is starting to look much better. Now that we are getting a lot of people back in, both from a teaching standpoint and the student standpoint, I can see that light at the end of the tunnel. But Howard isn't finished. He has many goals, one of which is to fix up the old Miller's house. That's the house where the person lived to work the mill. We want to refurbish it to be like it was back in 1795 when it was first built. Uh, both inside and out, because uh, right now I think it's it's you know, maybe you know it's kind of an eyesore right there near the corner of that BP station. He says his pipe dream would be to qualify for the do-it-yourself cable TV network show for a complete makeover. Howard hopes that perhaps somebody listening to this podcast might even have a contact he could call. Let him or me know if that's the case. Once all that's done, the third part of the creation of a downtown for Brookfield will be complete. And after nearly 300 years, the town will be able to say that it's finally built its own town center. Now, one last thing to consider about New England towns and town centers. Whenever a town is asked to give up its own land to form another town, what you learn in studying it is that 
they don't tend to give up the land where their oldest cemeteries were located if they can avoid it. Not only did the former Ironworks District residents end up in the cemetery just over the border in New Milford, but the namesake of the town, Reverend Thomas Brook, is buried in perpetuity in a cemetery in Newtown, located, you guessed it, just over the borderline from Brookfield. That's it for this episode of Amazing Tales from Off and On Connecticut's Beaten Path. I want to thank my guests for this episode, Bob Brown, chairman of the Brookfield Museum and Historical Society, and Howard Lasser, former town selectman and director of the Brookfield Craft Center. Please follow me on my main podcast website, amazingtalect.podbean.com. And in between episodes, drop me a line at either my Facebook or Instagram pages at Amazing Tales CT. If you liked what you heard, spread the word with your family and friends. See you next time here on Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path. I'm Mike Allen. Be safe and stay healthy. Amazing Tales from off and on Connecticut's beaten path is a production of True North Associates, LLC.